Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast, the podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep or simply take a moment to relax. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating. So sit back, take a deep breath, and let me read you an old story. Metaphysics, or the attempt to conceive the world as a whole by means of thought, has been developed from the first by the union and conflict of two very different human impulses, the one urging men towards mysticism and the other urging them towards science. Some men have achieved greatness through one of these impulses alone, others through the other alone. In Hume, for example, the scientific impulse reigns quite unchecked, while in Blake, the strong hostility to science coexists with profound mystic insight. But the greatest men who have been philosophers have felt the need both of science and mysticism. The attempt to harmonize the two was what made their life, and what always must, for all its arduous uncertainty, make philosophy, to some minds, a greater thing than either science or religion. Before attempting an explicit characterization of the science and the mystical impulses, I will illustrate them by examples from two philosophers whose greatness lies in the very intimate bending which they achieved. The two philosophers I mean are Heraclitus and Plato. Heraclitus, as everyone knows, was a believer in universal flux. Time builds and destroys things. From the few fragments that remain, it is not easy to discover how he arrived at his opinions. But there are some sayings that strongly suggest scientific observation as the source. The things that can be seen, heard and learned, he says, are what I prize most. This is the language of the empiricist to whom observation is the sole guarantee of truth. The sun is new every day, is another fragment, and this opinion, in spite of its paradoxical character, is obviously inspired by scientific reflection, and no doubt seemed to him to obviate the difficulty of understanding how the sun can work its way underground from west to east during the night. Actual observation must also have suggested to him his central doctrine, that fire is the one permanent substance, of which all visible things are passing phases. In combustion, we see things change utterly, while their flame and heat rise up into the air and vanish. This world, which is the same for all, he says, no one of gods or men has made, but it was ever, is now, and ever shall be, an ever-living fire. The transformations of fire are first of all sea, and half of the sea is earth, half whirlwind. This theory, though no longer one which science can accept, is nevertheless scientific in spirit. Science, too, might have inspired the famous saying which Plato alludes, You cannot step twice into the same rivers, for fresh waters are ever flowing in upon you. 
where we find also another statement among the extant fragments. We step and we do not step into the same rivers. We are and are not. The comparison of this statement, which is mystical, with one quoted by Plato, which is scientific, shows how intimately the two tendencies are blended in the same system of Heraclitus. Mysticism is, in essence, little more than a certain intensity and depth of feeling in regard to what is believed about the universe. And this kind of feeling leads Heraclitus, on the basis of his science, to strangely poignant sayings concerning life and the world, such as Time is a child playing draughts. The kingly power is a child's. It is poetic imagination, not science, which presents time as despotic lord of the world, with all the irresponsible frivolity of a child. It is mysticism, too, which leads Heraclitus to assert the identities of opposites. Good and ill are one, he says, and again, to God all things are fair and good and right. But men hold some things wrong and some right. Much of mysticism underlines the ethics of Heraclitus. It is true that a scientific determinism alone might have inspired the statement. Man's character is his fate, but only a mystic would have said, Every beast is driven to the pasture with blows, and again, it is hard to fight with one's heart's desire. Whatever it wishes to get, it purchases at the cost of soul. And again, wisdom is one thing. It is to know the thought by which all things are steered through all things. Examples might be multiplied, but those that have been given are enough to show the character of the man. The facts of science, as they appeared to him, fed the flame in his soul, and in its light he saw the depths of the world by the reflection of his own dancing, swiftly penetrating fire. In such a nature, we see the true union of the mystic and the man of science, the highest eminence, as I think, that it is possible to achieve in the world of thought. In Plato, the same twofold impulse exists, though the mystic impulse is distinctly the stronger of the two, and secures ultimate victory whenever the conflict is sharp. His description of the cave is a classical statement of belief in a knowledge and reality truer and more real than that of the senses. Imagine a number of men living in an underground, cavernous chamber, with an entrance open to the light, extending along the entire length of the cavern, in which they have been confined from their childhood, with their legs and necks so shackled that they are obliged to sit still and look straight forwards because their chains rendered impossible for them to turn their heads round and imagine a bright fire burning some way off. Above and behind them, an elevated roadway passing between the fire and the prisoners, with a low wall built along it, like the screens which conjurers put up in front of their audience, and above which they exhibit their wonders. 
I have it, he replied. Also figure to yourself a number of persons walking behind this wall and carrying with them statues of men and images of other animals, wrought in wood and stone and all kinds of materials, together with various other articles which overtop the wall, and as you might expect, let some of the passers-by be talking and others silent. You are describing a strange scene and strange prisoners. They resemble us, I replied. Now consider what would happen if the course of nature brought them a release from their fetters and a remedy for their foolishness. And in the following manner, let us suppose that one of them has been released and compelled suddenly to stand up and turn his neck round and walk with open eyes toward the light. And let us suppose he goes through all these actions with pain, and that the dazzling splendour renders him incapable of discerning those objects of which he used formerly to see shadows. What answers should you expect him to make if someone were to tell him that in those days he was watching foolish phantoms? but that now he is somewhere nearer to reality and is turned towards things more real and sees more correctly, above all, if he were to point out to him the several objects that are passing by and question him and compel him to answer what they are, should you not expect him to be puzzled and to regard his old versions as truer than the objects now forced upon his notice? Yes, much truer. Hence, I suppose, habit will be necessary to enable him to perceive objects in that upper world. At first, he will be most successful in distinguishing shadows. Then, he will discern the reflections of men and other things in water, and afterwards, the realities. And after this, he will raise his eyes to encounter the light of the moon and stars, finding it less difficult to study the heavenly bodies and the heaven itself by night than the sun and the sun's light by day. Doubtless. Last of all, I imagine he will be able to observe and contemplate the nature of the sun, not as it appears in water or on alien ground, but as it is in itself in its own territory. Of course, his next step will be to draw the conclusion that the sun is the author of the seasons and the years, and the guardian of all things in the visible world, and in a manner the cause of all things which he and his companions used to see. Obviously, this will be his next step. Now this imaginary case, my dear Glancon, you must apply in all its parts to our former statements by comparing the region which the eye reveals to the prison house and the light of the fire therein to the power of the sun and if, by the upward ascent and the contemplation of the upper world, you understand the mounting of the soul into the intellectual region, you will hit the tendency of my own surmises since you desire to be told what they are, though indeed, 
God only knows whether they are correct. But, be that as it may, the view which I take of this subject is to the following effect. In the world of knowledge, the essential form of good is the limit of our inquiries, and can barely be perceived, but when perceived, we cannot help concluding it is in every case the source of all that is bright and beautiful. In the visible world, giving birth to light and its master, and in the intellectual world, dispensing immediately and with full authority, truth and reason. And that whosoever would act wisely, either in private or in public, must set this form of good before his eyes. But in this passage, as throughout most of Plato's teaching, there is an identification of the good with which is truly real, which became embodied in the philosophical tradition and is still largely operative in our own day. In thus allowing a legislative function to the good, Plato produced a divorce between philosophy and science, from which, in my opinion, both have suffered ever since and are still suffering. The man of science, whatever his hopes may be, must lay them aside while he studies nature, and the philosopher, if he is to achieve truth, must do the same. Ethical considerations can only legitimately appear when the truth has been ascertained. They can and should appear as determining our feelings towards the truth, and our manner of ordering our lives in view of the truth, but not as themselves dictating what the truth is to be. There are passages in Plato among those which illustrate the scientific side of his mind, where he seems clearly aware of this. The most noteworthy is the one in which Socrates, as a young man, is explaining the theory of ideas to Parmenides. After Socrates has explained that there is an idea of the good, but not of such things as hair, mud, and dirt, Parmenides advises him not to despise even the meanest things. And this advice shows the genuine scientific temper. It is with the impartial temper that the mystic's apparent insight into the higher reality and a hidden good has to be combined if philosophy is to realise its greatest possibilities. And it is failure in this respect that has made so much of an idealistic philosophy thin, lifeless and insubstantial. It is only in marriage with the world that our ideals can bear fruit. Divorced from it, they remain barren. But marriage with the world is not to be achieved by an ideal which shrinks from fact, or demands in advance that the world shall conform to its desires. Parmenides himself is the source of a peculiarly interesting strain of mysticism, which pervades Plato's thought, the mysticism which may be called logical, because it is embodied in theories on logic. This form of mysticism, which appears, so far as the West is concerned, to have originated with Parmenides, dominates the reasoning of all great mystical metaphysicians from his day to that of Hegel and his modern disciples. Reality, he says, is uncreated, indestructible, unchanging, indivisible. It is immovable in the bounds of mighty chains, without beginning and without end. 
since coming into being and passing away have been driven afar, and true belief has cast them away. The fundamental principle of his inquiry is stated in a sentence which would not be out of place in Hegel. Thou cannot know what is not that is impossible, nor utter it, for it is the same thing that can be thought and that can be. And again, it needs must be that what can be thought and spoken of is for it is possible for it to be, and it is not possible for what it is nothing to be. The impossibility of change follows from this principle. For what is past can be spoken of, and therefore, by principle, still is. Mystical philosophy in all ages and in all parts of the world is characterised by certain beliefs which is illustrated by the doctrines we have been considering. There is first the belief in insight against discursive analytical knowledge, the belief in a way of wisdom, sudden, penetrating, coercive, which is contrasted with the slow and fallible study of outward appearance by a science relying wholly upon the senses. All who are capable of absorption in an inward passion must have experienced at times the strange feeling of unreality in common objects, the loss of contact with daily things in which the solidity of the outer world is lost, and the soul seems in utter loneliness to bring forth out of its own depths the mad dance of fantastic phantoms. This is the negative side of the mystic's initiation, the doubt concerning common knowledge, preparing the way for the reception of what seems a higher wisdom. Many men to whom this negative experience is familiar do not pass beyond it, but for the mystic it is merely the gateway to an ampler world. The mystic insights begin with the sense of mystery unveiled, of a hidden wisdom now suddenly become certain beyond the possibility of doubt. The sense of certainty and revelation comes earlier than a definite belief. The definite beliefs at which mystics arrive are the result of reflection upon the inarticulate experiences gained in the moment of insight. Often, beliefs which have no real connection with this moment become subsequently attracted to the central nucleus. Thus, in addition to the conviction which all mystics share, we find in many of them other convictions of a more local and temporary character, which no doubt become amalgamated with what was essentially mystical in virtue of their subjective certainty. We may ignore such inessential accretions and confine ourselves to the beliefs which all mystics share. The first and most direct outcome of the moment of illumination is belief in the possibility of a way of knowledge which may be called revelation or insight or intuition, as contrasted with sense, reason and analysis, which are regarded as blind guides leading to the morass of illusion. Closely connected with this belief is a conception of a reality behind the world of appearance and utterly different from it. The reality is regarded with an admiration 
often amounting to worship. It is felt to be always and everywhere close at hand, thinly veiled by the shows of sense, ready for the receptive mind to shine its glory even through the apparent folly and wickedness of man. The poet, the artist, and the lover are seekers after that glory. The haunting beauty that they pursue is the faint reflection of its sun, but the mystic lives in the full light of the vision. What others dimly seek, he knows, with a knowledge beyond which all other knowledge is ignorance. The second characteristic of mysticism is its belief in unity and its refusal to admit opposition or division anywhere. We found Heraclitus saying, good and ill are one, and again he says, the way up and the way down is one and the same. The same attitude appears in the simultaneous assertion of contradictory propositions, such as, we step and do not step into the same rivers, we are and are not. The assertion of Parmenides that reality is one and indivisible comes from the same impulse towards unity. In Plato, this impulse is less prominent, being held in check by his theory of ideas, but it reappears so far as his logic permits in the doctrine of the primacy of the good. A third mark of almost all mystical metaphysics is the denial of the reality of time. This is an outcome of the denial of division. If all is one, the distinction of past and future must be illusionary. We have seen this doctrine prominent in Parmenides, and among moderns it is fundamental in the systems of Spinoza and Hegel. The last of the doctrines of mysticism which we have to consider is its belief that all evil is mere appearance an illusion produced by the divisions and oppositions of the analytic intellect. Mysticism does not maintain that such things as cruelty, for example, are good, but it denies that they are real. They belong to that lower world of phantoms from which we are liberated by the insight of the vision. Sometimes, for example in Hegel, and at least verbally in Spinoza, not only evil, but good also is regarded as illusionary, though nevertheless, the emotional attitude to what is held to be reality is such as would naturally be associated with the belief that reality is good. What is, in all cases, ethically characteristic of mysticism is absence of indignation or protest, acceptance with joy, disbelief in the ultimate truth of the division into two hostile camps, the good and the bad. This attitude is a direct outcome of the nature of the mystical experience. With its sense of unity is associated a feeling of infinite peace. Indeed, it may be suspected that the feeling of peace produces, as feelings do in dreams, the whole system of associated beliefs which make up the body of mystic doctrine. But this is a difficult question and one on which it cannot be hoped that mankind will reach an agreement. For questions thus arise in considering the truth or falsehood of mysticism, namely, 1. Are there two ways of knowing? 
which may be called respectively reason and intuition, and if so, is either to be preferred to the other. 2. Is all plurality and division illusionary? 3. Is time unreal? 4. What kind of reality belongs to good and evil? On all four of these questions, while fully developed mysticism seems to me mistaken, I yet believe that, by sufficient restraint, there is an element of wisdom to be learned from the mystical way of feeling, which does not seem to be attainable in any other manner. If this is the truth, mysticism is to be condemned as an attitude towards life, not as a creed about the world. The metaphysical creed, I shall maintain, is a mistaken outcome of the emotion, although this emotion, as colouring and informing all other thoughts and feelings, even the cautious and patient investigation of truth by science, which seems the very antithesis of the mystic's swift certainty, may be fostered and nourished by that very spirit of reverence in which mysticism lives and moves.